Hope is the thing with feathers. Hope is the thing with feathers. That's like a bird. Like a bird. That perches in the soul. That perches in the soul. Welcome to the Thing with Feathers podcast, a podcast about birds and hope. I'm your host, birding enthusiast, Courtney Ellis. Welcome back to the Thing with Feathers podcast. I'm Courtney Ellis. I am so excited to introduce our guest today. Lauren Farr is an avian ecologist and a PhD student at North Carolina State University pursuing her degree in fisheries, wildlife, and conservation biology. Her current research focuses on studying the effects of climate change on nestling success in the federally endangered red cockaded woodpecker, RCW. We're going to learn all about those. And aside from her research in her spare time, which she doesn't have, she's a PhD student. Come on. Lauren is also an engaged and award-winning science communicator, serves as contributing editor for the North Carolina Sea Grant, and is a member of the editorial advisory board for the Wildlife Society. She also, and one of the reasons I asked her to be on this podcast, is she is one of the co-founders of Field Inclusive. We're going to talk about that as well. We have a lot to cover. Lauren, welcome. (laughs) Thank you so much, Courtney, for having me. That was a wonderful introduction and just reminded me of how many hats I wear as just like a person, like everything that I'm involved in. So I'm super excited to be here. So thanks for having me. (laughs) I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. I want to learn about you. I want to learn about your birding and I want to learn about these woodpeckers. Can we start with these woodpeckers? with the woodpeckers of course of course so I guess it'll be good to actually start from the beginning of how I even got involved with these guys so my uh, my advisor here at NC State uh, her advisor when she was in grad school he has been studying these woodpeckers for years and so I had told my advisor you know for my PhD I told her in these exact words, I was like, I, I want something that's like field intensive, like put me out in the field, like seeing like wildlife biologists, like that's what I picture, just being out in the field doing this cool field work. And I remember she gave me this look like, you know, like, mm, well, if I got the research for you. And so, you know, I, I got what I asked for. <laughs> and so she was able to put me in touch with uh, her advisor, who's been, again, studying these woodpeckers for years. And that's how I got involved with them. And so back in the summer of 2021, I was able to go out and basically learn about like the management and everything that it takes to manage a federally endangered species. So the red cockaded woodpecker, or RCW for short, because it's such a mouthful to say, red cockaded woodpecker, but um, they are a federally endangered species. And so some reasons for them becoming federally endangered are, they boil down to three things really. So we have habitat loss, habitat degradation, and fire suppression. So a cool thing to note about these woodpeckers is that they are a fire dependent species. So this means that they, then the ecosystem that they live in, which is the longleaf pine ecosystem, one of the most diverse ecosystems out there in the world, uh, in this ecosystem, it thrives on fire. So prescribed fire, prescribed burning, as some may, may know it, it's, it's known, you know, many different names, but, um, with the fire and everything, it 
it gives these benefits to not only the woodpeckers, but to also the other species in the ecosystem, which is why it became so diverse. So we have many species of, you know, rare plants, rare animals, and everything out there is, you know, dependent on this management of this ecosystem. So those, those birds out there, so that's what I study. So as a PhD student, I am looking at uh, climate change impacts and how that might be impacting their reproductive success. So their nestling success. And so looking at those things really, so researchers that have again been studying these species for years, they've been noticing, you know, sort of this like weird little trend in their reproductive success over the past like two, three years. And they have a feeling that it might be something, you know, related to climate change. And so the one thing that, you know, is my favorite question and probably every scientist's favorite question when we're doing our research why should this matter? Like, why why should I care about, you know, looking at climate change and looking at these woodpeckers? Why does it matter? Well, going back to this species being endemic to the longleaf pine ecosystem, this means that they have little capacity to shift their range. So, you know, especially when it comes to climate change, it's really important for us to understand what may be driving, you know, the reproductive success of this species. Because again, they have little capacity to shift their range. They can't just, you know, get up and move from one place to another. The longleaf pine ecosystem is their home and that's where they thrive. And so really understanding, you know, the the you know impacts of climate change or anything else that might be you know driving the reproductive success of this bird is where my research <laughs> comes in as a PhD student but not only do I get to do my research I also get to again I get to be involved in the management of this species so I get to see what it takes to you know manage a federally endangered species and so again going back to when I told my advisor I wanted something you know field intensive I wanted something hardcore she did not disappoint. So I love learning about these woodpeckers. For people who are listening, who don't have a picture of them in front of them, what do they look like and how do they behave? Yes, 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 yes. Good question. So if we are looking at the RCW here, picture a picture a downy woodpecker. So these guys get really, they get, a lot of people confuse them with downy woodpeckers, hairy woodpeckers, because they literally look the exact same, like similar. They're just like the feather, like the patterns on their feathers are what's, are what's different and what you kind of have to hone in on. So I, I tell people to picture a downy woodpecker, but about the size of a cardinal. So about the size of a Northern cardinal, these are what those birds look like. So um, again, black, white so they have like white like cheek pouches or cheek patches white cheek patches on their cheek and um so yeah so black and white and then they have like this red tuft so the males will have this like red what we call a crown patch and that's how we tell them apart so between males and females the males will have the red on their crown and the females won't and it's really difficult to spot like every like every so often because Usually the males will only display this when they're either defending their territory or during the breeding season. So if you get an eye on an RCW, most likely, more often than not, you won't be able to tell whether it's a male or a female. So you might you might get lucky in seeing that and seeing that red. But most often than not, you really can't tell right off the bat on whether it's a male or a female. But that's how we tell them apart. <laughs> that's the thing with birds. They never really cooperate in the way you need them to. Not at all. 
I was I was pointing out a, a ruby crown kinglet to my husband and he's like, but it doesn't have a ruby crown. And I'm like, no, it does. You just can't see it from this angle. Like it's yeah, overhead exactly. and it's not, you know, it's not cooperating. And he's exactly. like, well, how do you know? And I was like, you exactly. have to recognize the song. You have to, you know, exactly. like if you're relying on the patch of and tiny patch of red. And it's funny because actually this past weekend I saw a kinglet and those, those suckers are fast. Like they're like really fat. Like, so I'll be out in nature with my camera. So anytime that I can, I'll take my camera out and I'll take like cool little bird photos. I'm in no way a professional photographer but I love to take photos and it like that 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 kinglet gosh it's just <laughs> getting a good photo of that is like mm, that's a that's a challenge <laughs> they're, they're hyperactive little they're little guys and girls sure. those kinglets for sure <laughs> <laughs> so what does your current field work look like what are you working on what will you be working on as we lead spring into summer Yes. So my field season lasts from about April until mid-July. So that's usually when the breeding seasons of the RCW start up in mid-April there. And so what I do, so as far as the management goes, there's a few things that we do. So we have to basically, so these birds, they live in um, clusters, what we call clusters. So they live in family groups. So Going back to the term cooperatively breeding species. So the RCW is a cooperatively breeding species, which means that they live in these family groups that are usually made up of a breeder male, a breeder female, and what we call helpers. And so these helpers are usually male offspring from previous broods who will stick around and help the breeder male and breeder female incubate the eggs, raise the chicks, and defend the territory because, again, these birds are very, very territorial. So in their little family groups, they have a territory, you know, a set set of like cavity trees that we call it. And so they may have, you know, anywhere from about like maybe around like six to seven different cavity trees. And what that does is the members of the groups each of them will basically nest in a cavity tree, which is pretty cool. And then on, on top of that too, uh, sorry ladies, but the um, breeder male gets the better cavity tree. And so the breeder female, we're just, you know, we get what we get. So <laughs> fun, fun, but not so fun fact. Um, but yeah, and so what we'll do is at the beginning of the breeding season, we will go out to those group of cavity trees and we will basically check each tree with what we call like a treetop peeper. So what this is, basically think of like a pole that's like extended and it's like extended to where it can reach the cavity tree, depending on, you know, how high it is, like the, the cavity, it can reach in there and it has a camera on one end and we have a monitor on the other. And so when we stick this camera in, we can see on our monitor, which is down below on the ground with us, what's in the cavity. So the fun thing about this is that you never know what you're going to get. So you may see eggs, you may see uh, snakes. So the black rat snake is the RCW's number one predator. And um, you may you might even see flying squirrels or any other, you know, kinds of animals that might use, you know, the, the RCW cavities. So there are a lot of other animals that will use the RCW cavities as well. So once we identify a nest, we will continue to monitor that nest until the chicks hatch. And then around day seven, day eight, that's that's the that's the um, correct day that you want to go out and ban these guys. Because, again, we're working with a fairly endangered species. So there's many protocols that we have to follow. So around day seven, day eight, we'll go back out there and we will ban the chicks. And now this is where the fun comes in. So to get the chicks, 
<laughs> we have to climb the trees. We have to physically climb the trees to retrieve the chicks. And so what we're doing here is we're using what we call Swedish ladders. So they are really lightweight ladders, believe it or not. But depending on how high your cavity is, that's just, that's going to tell you right there how many sections of the ladders that you have. So we take these sections and as we're going up the tree, we have to like build our ladder sections again, depending on how high the cavity is to get to the nestling. So then once we're up there, <laughs> so once we're up there, we have this really cool like pulley device that we can stick in the cavity and we're literally like fishing blind. So just picture that. We can't see anything that's going on. We're in there literally fishing blind. And so we have this kind of like pulley system, this like noose almost really, that we can go in there and we can um, we can grab the chicks with with this with this pulley system, pull them on out. Once we get all the chicks, we climb back down and we band them. Then we got to climb back up, put them back in the cavity, <laughs> climb back down. <laughs> I, I'm I'm picturing American Ninja Warrior Woodpecker Edition. Oh, like this sounds this sounds amazing and oh, incredible and also it, very difficult. Yeah, like, oh my gosh. And you're you're American Ninja Warrior for sure. And then one of my colleagues, I will never forget this, she made like a video. So I don't know if you've seen the Disney movie Mulan, where like they have the um the uh the uh, be a man song, like or that when like the the part where she's like climbing up the pole with that's exactly what I'm doing every time I do that I'm thinking of that song like in my head as I'm just climbing this tree it's it's something it is something and then so once we do that we wait about 30 days and then the chicks will fledge and then what we have to do is we have to go back out there and we have to recite them. So when we band them, we band them with these color bands and each group has a specific color band combo. And that's how we can recognize, you know, where the birds, you know, came from, what group they came from, what chicks successfully fledged. And so all of that data is being put into this 40 plus year, high quality, long term reproductive data set that I get to use for my research. So again, I get the benefit of going out there and actually helping to contribute to the data that I'm using. And to me, it gives me, it gives like a different sense of, you know, of just, you know, instead of me just looking at a data set and being like, hmm, okay, where did these numbers come from? I can actually now go back and relate and be like, oh yeah, like this is where these numbers come from. You know, this is what, you know, happened last season or the year before. And like, just knowing that I contributed to the data set is pretty, pretty awesome. So again, I get to do that on top of my research. I mean, it's a, it's a win-win for me. <laughs> You know that that data has blood, sweat, and tree climbing in it. Literally. <laughs> Literally. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Is there a like particular sense of relief when your feet hit the ground again of like, okay, one nest down? You know, I remember the first time. So the my colleagues that I work with out there, that first year before that summer came, they had invited me out and they were like, well, we just want to invite you out. We want to like, you know put you up a tree so that you see how it feels. And so again, I'm sitting here like, what? Like put me up a tree. Like what are they talking about? And then so literally it's, it's funny because people always ask me, they're like, well, are you afraid of heights? And I'm like, no, not at all. But it's like, it's, it's a different feeling, you know, like still like be like, 
being off the ground, you know, and although again, like I'm strapped in, I have a harness, like I'm set, like literally it's you out there trusting your equipment, like a hundred percent, like literally it's you trusting your equipment. So although I'm strapped in and although I'm, you know, I feel safe and I'm comfortable, it's just still a different feeling being up there. And, and you have to think too. So my, so the trees that I have, you know, with my groups, they can range anywhere from 20 to about 50 or 60 feet. So when we're talking like that 50 or 60 feet, we're talking about like five or six different ladder sections. So picture like being up that high. But I tell people, I always tell people, I'm like, if you, if you dare to look down or just like look out, it is so beautiful to see the ecosystem from that high up because you're you literally get to see like all the trees the landscape like everything and it's it's just breathtaking so as as much as I would like love to stay up there for you know as long as I could I'm like oh I have work to do but I take it in <laughs> I take it in whenever I can and it's oh my gosh it is great <laughs> It feels like part of your PhD application should have been, are you afraid of heights? Check yes or no. Like we just, we literally, just want to. <laughs> literally, literally, literally. And it's, and it's funny too, because my advisor told me, you know, out of, out of all of the students um, from, in her advisor's lab, she was the only one that actually didn't work with RCWs simply because she was afraid of heights. And she was like, no, I am not climbing trees. Well, Lauren, I have loved learning about these woodpeckers from you as part of my research to prepare for this podcast. I was looking up pictures of them and information on them and they're just fascinating, beautiful birds. So fascinating. They are so fascinating. And I just, and again, like, I'll, you know, I, I consider myself an avian ecologist. I'm a huge birder, but really when this project was introduced to me, I had like, I had no idea about this red cockaded woodpecker or the longleaf pine ecosystem. And so really I tell, I tell everyone that I meet now, you know, this project has really, I mean, it's, it's really continued to shape me as a person. And not only that, but like I've made so many new and different connections that if it weren't for this project, I probably would have never met the people that I'm involved with now. So, you know, I'm involved with like different, you know, organizations and, you know, sectors, you know, I got like U.S. Fish and Wildlife. I have the Wildlife Resources Commission. I have what we call, so my research is done in the North Carolina Sandhills. So we have the Sandhills Conservation Partnership. And in that group, it's where all those different groups like come together in one room. And I mean, it's just been amazing to, again, make all of these, you know, different connections. And I, and I kid you not, if you had to ask me way back when, when I was little, like, I would always tell people, I am not a people person, like at mm. all, like I am such like an introvert, but now I describe myself as like a, a like an introverted extrovert, I believe is what they call it. <laughs> like, so like, I talk to people now, and sometimes I'll tell them that and they're like, are you kidding me? <laughs> what What do you mean? Like you were totally a people person. And I'm like, well, way back when, absolutely mm. not. But so, but now it's again, making all of these new connections. It's been so beneficial and being in a room and knowing other people who care about this species, who care about this ecosystem, learning more and new things about the management. I mean, it's just, I like, people could write a whole book about it and I'm sure they have, but there's been plenty actually. But I mean, it's learning about all of that stuff 
has just really been great. <laughs> like really, mm. really great. <laughs> There's something about sharing a love with other people that I, I think makes it easier to connect. It does. It does. It does for sure. For sure. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And like I said, I, I give props to this project. So I, I always give props to my advisor because she was the one that introduced me, you know, to this research and to this work. But then I give props to the work for introducing me to all of these different people. It's, it has been great. So I've been on this project now for about two years. So I'm in the second year of my PhD. And so I'm looking to go until 2025. We're aiming for 2025. So within that time, I will have been out in the field for about, you know, three more times because I'm trying to get, you know, collect as much data as I can for my research and for my project and everything. But it's, I can really see myself continuing with this work in the future, whether that be entering academia and having my own research lab and having my own students, because there's so many questions that I have with this species, but me as a PhD student, I only have like this much time, you know, so I had to, so I came in, I remember I came in with all these questions, but I had to narrow it down to something that was, you know, doable and manageable, which I totally get, but I have all these other questions in the back of my head that I'm, you know, if I were to continue with this work and again, have my own research lab and have my own students, I will have something to put them on for sure. I have many ideas in my brain. <laughs> That to me is one of the most wonderful things about birding is it's this bottomless bowl of things you can learn. And even if you're just a hobby birder and you're grabbing books from the library, you can read forever and learn forever. But even more for people who are on this cutting edge of research, it's I have this question and I have that question and this requires that data and I need to, you know, follow this bunny trail and just what a, what a delight birding is in that regard. Oh, what a delight. I mean, it is great. I, Whenever, whenever I have downtime, but you know, <laughs> what's free time or downtime anymore? But you know, whenever I do find that time, I love to go outside and just listen, like just stand out there and listen to the birds, listen to the sounds around me. It's just so, uh, it just brings me back to earth, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I escape from my, you know, chaotic <laughs> life for a little bit. <laughs> bring and brings me back down to earth and it's it's great it's amazing I hear a variation of that from so many people that especially academics it's it's so easy to get up in this cloudy brain space and to just put your feet on the ground and what do I hear what do I see even if your only free time is between the car and the grocery store there might there might be a grackle there might be a starling yes Yes. And, you know, and that and and you bring up a good point there, too, because I so I did. So as part of my science, as, as a part of my science communication work, I did this story about what people call trash birds. So we use this term trash bird, right, to describe birds that we may see every day and who may not be, you know, that spectacular or, you know, cause we just see them every day. So like you have, you have your starlings, robins, you know, morning doves. And so I did this story about that and I got, you know, input from a ton of people on it about, you know, 
why this term trash bird should not even be a thing, right? And so it goes back to what you were saying, you know, even if it's just hearing a starling, right? So many people would probably be, you know, like, mm, like starling, like, oh, I can't stand starlings, da, 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 da. but really, I'm that kind of person where I feel like we all should be appreciative of any, you know, kind of bird that we see or hear. Like, although it's cool to, you know, go international and see these different bird species, don't get me wrong, it's amazing, but still, you know, being appreciative of the birds that we have here, they can still bring us the same benefits, right? They can still bring us that, you know, calming feeling, down to earth feeling. And so that's what I, you know, go by and live by. And, you know, I try to stress to people. So, and again, the people that I talked to for that story that I wrote, they were on the same page as me, which is great. So, I mean, it's, it's, I was, I was glad to hear that, you know, more people really weren't, you know, taking this term to heart, right? And they were just like, eh, yeah, like, now we don't want to use that term. But sometimes you get those people. And so you have to sort of, you know, remind them, you know, hey, well, all birds are great, right? Like all, all birds are great. All birds matter. <laughs> mm, I love it. And they all have something to teach us. And it's they not do. the starling's fault. It's a starling. <laughs> right. <laughs> Exactly. Right. Right. It's so being the it's best starling it knows how to be. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so that's what I mean, that's what I believe we should try to remember just with anything in nature. I mean, nature is to me, nature is here to soothe us. Nature is here to be a calm and, you know, welcoming place for people to go and enjoy. And I mm. feel like that's what we should we should remember as as individuals. <laughs> all starlings matter all starlings matter <laughs> all starlings matter well lauren one of the topics you suggested for our time together was how you got into birding as a woman of color and yeah. i'm a middle-aged white lady it's almost a cliche that i would be into birding this is what middle-aged white people do we get into birding um you are not a middle-aged white lady so tell me about <laughs> okay. your journey how you got into birding yes well i love talking about my journey so I I love to tell this story because I will start out by saying that I literally, I came full circle. And so here's what I mean by that. So growing up, I grew up in a very rural area, right? So I was, I was exposed to nature. I was in the outdoors. So my dad, my dad is a hunter. So whenever he would go outdoors, he would always take me with him. And, you know, and I would get to experience the outdoors. So I've, you know, been in the outdoors. I love the outdoors, even when I was young. And then I use my uncle as an example. So my uncle, he was, you know, your avid backyard birder, right? And so he would always put up bird theaters, he would bird watch. And me being, you know, little, you know, I was probably maybe around like six, seven, eight years old. He gave me this field guide. So like this bird field guide. And I remember I would call him on the phone, you know, even as I was growing up still, I would call him on the phone and we would talk about all the birds that he was seeing in his backyard, all the birds that I was seeing in my backyard. And, but coming from, you know, from the community that I'm from. So, you know, being a black woman coming from the black community, it's, it's really not, you know, it's, it's, it's not so often that we think about you know, being outdoors or having these careers in wildlife as being a career. So you could imagine, you know, my parents growing up, 
it, it took them a while for them to get on board with me, you know, and what I wanted to do, like, you know, going to my parents and be like, well, hey, I want to be a wildlife biologist. I want to study birds. So you could imagine that they were looking at me kind of like, okay, well. Our daughters get to starve to death. <laughs> This is unfortunate. Like, you know, like this, this is unfortunate, right? And then, you know, then, then the next question, well, what kind of job are you going to have? <laughs> what kind of job are you going to have? How are you going to be financially stable, right? So how do birds always, pay the bills? How do birds pay the bills? How do they pay the bills? So that was always the question that I would get from my parents, you know? And so growing up, actually, so again, we have that, you know, experiences with my dad, we have the experiences with my uncle, but growing up, I actually started out wanting to be a veterinarian. So mm. I, you can, you, you talk to a lot of people and they have this similar, you know, story about, you know, you tell people I love animals. Well, the first thing that people say is, oh, we'll be a veterinarian. That's, that's it. That's it right there, you know? And so, and although you would watch these, you know, things on TV, you would see Jane Goodall, you know, in the forest with her monkeys, you would watch the crocodile hunter. For me, I would look at that and be like, oh, well, that's cool. But they're just having fun. There's no way that I could make this, like, this is a career, like what? So I ran with this idea of wanting to be a veterinarian up until high school. And then I started college. And my first two semesters of undergrad were rough to say the least. So I, I did an internship in my vet's office before I attended college. And I guess that's why they say, you know, get experience in what you feel like you want to do, right? So although it was cool, although I enjoyed it and our veterinarians, they're, they're awesome and they do amazing things. I just could not see myself doing that for the rest of my life. And so I went off to college being like, all right, well, what am I going to do now? Because, you know, uh, I, maybe let's just go with a straight biology degree for now. Cause I mean, I'll, I'll figure it out. Right. So those first two years I was, you know, taking courses that just, I just wasn't interested in. It was rough. I was having a rough life. And then I ended up taking a wildlife management course. And mm -hmm. so my undergrad, so I went to Wingate University. It's a small liberal arts school. So I was lucky that they had an environmental biology degree, right? And they had these courses. And so I took a wildlife management course. And after taking that course, you know, or while taking that course, rather, a light bulb just went off. And I just became interested in learning about all of these different management techniques and the history and all of this stuff. And so after that, I went to the professor who taught it and he, he is an ornithologist. So his research, he studied birds. So I knew whatever I wanted to do, I wanted to, you know, get an advanced degree and go off to grad school, but in what I didn't know. But after taking the wildlife management course, I was like, mm, okay, well, now I'm interested in research. Like, what kind of research can I, can I get? Because one of my other professors, she had a similar path to me, right? So she wanted to be a veterinarian. She started off on the vet track. She realized it wasn't for her. But then all of a sudden, she found research. And she realized that, hmm, research is a thing. Like, we can, you know, actually do this as a career. So me wanting to go to grad school, already starting to look into, you know, wildlife programs and everything. I was sort of like, well, I want some experience with research. So I went to this professor who studied birds and he put me on this project looking at uh, Chinese blue-breasted quail. So they're also known as king quail. They're the world's smallest quail, button quail. So they're known by many names. And I started working with these quail and I kid you not, I just, fell in love. I fell in love with the birds. I fell in love with research. 
I fell in love with realizing that, yes, research can be a career. Wildlife can be a career. And, you know, but navigating that, I will be honest, it was it was hard. It's tough. It's still tough because I feel like that's one of the main reasons why there's a lot of people who question, you know, going into this field, because it all comes back to that question of, well, what kind of job am I going to have? Like, where where am I going to end up, you know, with this? And but really, I just, you know, it sounds cliche, but trust the process. I tell people to trust the process. And always I always tell people my one little tidbit of advice, never be afraid to change your mind. Hmm. So it was really difficult in the beginning for me to tell my parents that, hey, this is what I want to do. I found something that I love because I felt like I was, you know, disappointing them in a way, right? Like, you know, I was just brushing off their advice about being financially stable, right? And I just wanted to go out and just play in the woods, right? But um they they came around to it. They saw how happy I was. They saw how, you know, and even now seeing how, you know, successful I've been and what I've been able to do with, you know, my research and my science communication, like my parents are my my biggest cheerleaders, 100%. They were always my biggest cheerleaders. It just took them a little bit to understand. And so it goes back to what I was talking about, about, you know, coming from, you know, the black community or any kind of, you know, minority community where looking at this field of wildlife biology, it's not really something that our parents grew up with you know, knowing about. So of course they're going to go into it, kind of questioning it, like, Hmm, like, "Mm, I don't know about this, you know, but yeah. And so, but that, that's my journey. And so I tell people, I literally came full circle because again, I was exposed to nature and wildlife with my dad. I was exposed to birding with my uncle, but again, our community usually looks at those things as being like recreational, right? Like it's just something that, you know, I do for, you know, fun or, you know, so I, you know, didn't really see it as a career until I went to undergrad, until I started talking to people, until I started to realize that, hmm, trying, you know, figuring out that path. And so that's how I got to where I am today. And I'm, I'm absolutely loving it. And so going back to being a black woman in this field, as you know, there's not many of us in this field. So anytime that I can, you know, do stuff like this, which is why I was grateful that you asked me to be on this podcast, because anytime that I can do podcasts, anytime that I can have my, you know, face somewhere on screen, anytime that I can express things in my writing, anytime that others, you know, from minority communities can see that I am who I am. And, you know, if she can do it, then I can do it. That's, that's the role model that I, you know, want to continue to be for others. And hopefully, you know, myself and many of my other colleagues, right? So we have things like, you know, Black Birders Week, and then Black Birders Week, you know, that turned into this huge thing of just seeing all of these, you know, all of this color in nature, right? And so a lot of people were inspired by that. And they were like, oh my gosh, I did not realize that so many of us existed, you know, in nature, in this space. And it was great to have a week like that. And then, you know, from there we got, you know, other weeks, you know, and so having stuff like that is just super beneficial. And I think is going to work towards increasing the diversity that we want to see, you know, in this field. So, (laughs) yes. Birding is for everyone. Birding is for everyone. (laughs) Birding is for everyone. Yes. Well, Lauren, one of the projects that I've been so inspired by that I've I've seen you 
co-found and, and start out. And I, I noticed you guys have swag now. There's swag on the website. I will, I will link to, I will link to this in the show notes if anyone needs some swag. swag. Um, but you have co-founded Field Inclusive. Tell me about Field Inclusive and your passion for making sure these natural spaces are open to anyone, especially people who have been historically excluded. Yes. And so, and so I, at at first I laugh, right? So I always laugh because, you know, myself and my co-founder, we're just two, you know, PhD students twiddling our thumbs. We have nothing going on, right? So we were- Lots of free time, nothing but free free time. time. The free time. And so we were literally, we were sitting down and we were thinking about it and we were like, hmm, what if we what if we started a nonprofit like about you know field safety and safety in the field, right? And so the idea turned into a nonprofit that we founded in August of 2022. And it, like we have gotten so far with it in such like a short amount of time. It's Oh my, like, we just can't believe it. Right. So being, so my colleague, she's also a black woman. She's also here at NC state. She's about to finish. So good for her. Um, And so, you know, so she's had some experience experiences herself with, you know, being out in the field, being a black woman in the field and, you know, sort of, you know, feeling uncomfortable, you know, in, in the area that she works in. So she works in a very, rural area. It's her experiences with that. And then, you know, with me, so the site that I work on, it's, you know, publicly, like it's a public site, it's open to the public, anyone can come on it, right. And really, the first thing that we thought about is, you know, being outdoors in these spaces, you know, we're grad students, we're, you know, a part of NC State, we're basically working for NC State, you know, for our degrees and whatnot. There was nothing really out there to identify us as being from NC State. So that was like our red flag number one, right? So although this can happen to anyone with having, you know, whether it be the authorities or whether it be some random person that's just curious about what you're doing, minorities are always put in that top tier of being, you know, more likely to be harassed when we're outdoors. Because again, it goes back to what we just said earlier, you know, these, these spaces are for everyone, nature's for everyone, birding's for everyone. That has not, you know, we're still working with that, right? There's still, you know, we're still having these encounters with, you know, people that lead to, you know, very, you know, unfriendly encounters, you know, and so, Using that, that was our first red flag, right, was being like, okay, well, we need something when we're outdoors that says that we're from NC State. So it's sort of, it's kind of like a safety barrier for us almost, because if people see that, oh, okay, they're from NC State. Well, NC State, I believe, is well known, right? So they're like, okay, well, they're from NC State. Like, they're they're legit, you know, because for whatever reason, again, we can't exist in the outdoors, to, to say the least, right, without having some sort of conflict, you know, more oftentimes than not. And so we started, you know, so so my co-founder actually worked with my advisor to get these field these um field magnets. So there's these car magnets actually that you can put on the side of your car and it says like NC State College of Natural Resources. It identifies that we're from NC State and again it's that safety barrier, right? And so Field Inclusive started by, you know, thinking about those, you know, instances, thinking about that idea of the car magnets and us being like, you know, okay, 
more attention needs to be put on what we're calling social field safety. So what we're meaning by that is, you know, encounters with people <laughs> like, you know, outdoors, right? So we, and then with this nonprofit, we learned too that there are not many people. So there, we, we learned that there's two sets of people. There's those people that, you know, are familiar with social field safety, but they're still kind of like, mm, well, why does it matter? And then there's those people who, when we say field safety, they believe we're talking about physical field safety, right? So we're talking about being outdoors and, you know, watching out for stump holes, identifying, you know, poisonous plants, you know, animals to look out for, different things like that. And so that's why we started tacking on the term social field safety, because we realized when we were talking about field safety, there were, you know, that those group of people, they would always assume that we were talking about, you know, oh, well, physical field safety. Yeah, sure. When really, no, we're talking about this whole other aspect of social field safety, encounters with people, interactions with people. And we felt like that needs needed to be put at the same level as physical field safety. So while we recognize that physical field safety, yes, it's important, social field safety, we felt needed to be put it at that same level. So with Field Inclusive, we do a few things. So we have um, through sponsorships. So we're always looking for sponsorships and different organizations that would like to, you know, partner with us or anything like that um, to, you know, raise awareness, whether that be to raise awareness, whether that be to, you know, put on workshops, whether that be to provide funding for these opportunities, which I'm about to get into here in a second. So we um, have different opportunities. We have, you know, travel awards, we have research grants, and we have fellowships. And so with those, different organizations have put in the time and their own money for, you know, in order to partner with us, in order for us to create these opportunities, because traveling <laughs> is expensive, <laughs> is expensive, right? And being a professional, being a grad student, it just, it's very expensive. So you have to, you know, noticing when we're doing things like traveling to, you know, professional conferences or workshops, all of this is furthering our professional development. But we have to get there. We have to fund ourselves to, you know, get there. So that's why we offer the travel, you know, the travel awards, the fellowships. So but we're hoping that with those, you know, catering them to, you know, diverse communities and minorities. So marginalized and, and historically excluded is what, you know, our motto is. And catering that catering those opportunities to those groups, we hope will, you know, help towards, you know, increasing that diversity in the natural science field, right? So, but we also want to offer other things. So not only do we offer, not only do we want to offer these, you know, scholarships and, you know, funding opportunities, but we also want to create resources that organizations and institutions can use. So for example, hmm. we've had organizations that have came to us and been like, well, we're trying to cater our application towards diverse communities towards marginalized communities, but we're not getting that many. How can we, you know, do this better? What kind of wording do we need to use? Those are sort of the, you know, services that we want to offer, as well as, you know, put together some other resources that we can house on our website for others, you know, to use. So for example, this past January, we had our first field inclusive week. <laughs> so mm. During that week, it was an all virtual week to make it, you know, more inclusive so anyone can join from wherever. We had different speakers come on board every
every day and talk about different things in relation to, you know, field safety and being in the field. So we had a panel on field safety. We had a speaker talk about mental health. We had a speaker talk about disabilities in field work. That one was really, really popular. Hmm. And we, we're still getting comments from people. So all this stuff is housed on our YouTube page. So Field Inclusive, we're on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. At Field Inclusive is our handle uh, for all of those. And we, we still get comments from people saying thank you for putting and making these resources available. Like, I, I'm going to pass these along to my organization. You know, we can use these for sure. And so, you know, different stuff like that. We want to not only provide, again, those, you know, financial opportunities, but we want to also provide resources that we can, you know, you know, cater to different organizations and institutions so that they can have that. And hopefully, you know, that will, you know, increase, you know, their willingness in wanting to promote a more inclusive outdoors, whether that be in their program, whether that be with their, you know, workers that they have. And so really, yeah, that's what that's what Field Inclusive is about. And we also, yes, have Field Inclusive swag. (laughs) (laughs) We love the swag. (laughs) We have the swag. What a what an important project and what a big project to take on. And I, I just so appreciate the way that you've been raising awareness and putting it on people's radars, because as you mentioned, a lot of the birding spaces tend to be wider. They tend to be more privileged. And I think folks may not even be aware of some of these issues. And I was out birding a couple of days ago and I was walking just in the neighborhood and ended up standing in some person's driveway with my binoculars, staring at a turkey vulture in his tree. And he came out the front to see like, who's standing in my driveway. And I had a moment of like, okay, you know, it's a fairly white neighborhood. I'm a white person. If I was a person of color, would he have come out? Would he have been so gentle in his question? Would he have just called the police, you know, and, and just realizing our own privilege and being able to talk about these things and how to welcome people of color into these birding spaces and help as, as allies, as friends to, to be in it with you and to be aware of these things and to be in any way we can standing up for, for our brothers and sisters who, you know, face these struggles that they shouldn't, like, it's not fair. It's not fair. Yes. And you, I mean, you, you, you said it perfectly there. Right. And so that's why, again, we, we continue to, you know, although we're, you know, here to support marginalized and historically excluded individuals, we still want to recognize that this can happen to anyone, just like what you described. However, you put it perfectly, right? What if I was black? Like, that's that's the thing. Like, what if I was a person of color? What if I wasn't white? How would this have transpired? What would have happened? That's the key. That's the key right there, right? And so, and it's, and it's allowed us to see, like, the more people that we talk to, again, like you said, there might be some people who just aren't aware of it. And we're not bashing them in any way, but it allows us to see that, hmm, we need to start from the beginning, right? Like we need to start from the beginning with, okay, well, why is this an issue? Well, this is how, you know, like this is where it started. This is, this is different things that have happened in the past. And this is why this has become, you know, such an issue, right? So I remember, you know, at the very beginning of this, we would always, you know, just jump right into it with people. And then we realize as we're talking to them, that, you know, oh, well, we can tell that they're still kind of like, well, why is this important? Why does it matter? And then that's allowed us to be like, okay, we need to start at the very beginning on what we're, you know, defining as, you know, you know, social field safety, what we're standing for as our organization, you know, talking about the different events. But again, I love that you brought up that fact, because again, I stress to people that yes, this can happen to anyone, absolutely anyone. But 
what if I was a person of color? What if I was black? What would have happened then? How would this have been different? That's exactly it. And to be fair, I shouldn't have been in his driveway. The sidewalk was right there. I just wasn't paying attention. I was, <clears throat> I had my binoculars and I was following this turkey vulture and wasn't paying attention where I was walking, right? But I it's think- turkey raising, vulture's fault. <laughs> uh, it was. I mean, thousand percent blame that turkey vulture. He was up to something. Um, I love this work that you're doing and this project Thank that you're taking you. on. How can we, how can we help you in this good work? Our yes. listeners who are people of color, but also our listeners who are white like me, how can we, how can we partner with you? And I'm yes. so excited to raise awareness for this. We'll link to all those social medias and the YouTube yes. channel. I love that you make these resources available for free, yes. which you can do yes. because you're a, an independently wealthy graduate student. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yes. No, thank you for that question. So yes. So on our website, if you go to www.fieldinclusive.org on there, it has a whole bunch of, you know, just like about us, about our organization, our mission, our values. And there's also a tab up there that you'll see. um, It has like sponsorships as well as a donate button. So Feel free, like anyone, you know, who would like to donate to our organization or any any organi- or any organization or institution that you might feel, you know, that you may know or be a part of that might want to, you know, partner with us in some way. All of that effort and, you know, anything that you donate, it goes towards those opportunities that I just described with. So it goes towards the, you know, travel grants. It goes towards the, you know, fellowships, towards research grants that we give, you know, general operating expenses also. So like it, it costs money to have our website up. So like any, so you're, you're supporting us there, right? So anything like that is great, but also, you know, if you do, you know, follow us on social media, anything that we, you know, post about, anything that we tweet about, a simple share, a simple like, I mean, that goes a long way than, you know, most people think it it truly does. So even doing something as simple as that with, you know, just promoting us and what we're doing, that that goes a long way and it speaks volumes. Mm. Well, Lauren, I love the work that you're doing. I love your woodpeckers. I love your your enthusiasm. This has been such a delightful conversation. Is yes. there anything else you'd like our listeners to know? You know, I I I have enjoyed our conversation today and I've enjoyed the time that I've spent with you. And I I absolutely again I thank you. I can't thank you enough for asking me to be on your podcast because I take, again, I take opportunities like this to get my voice out there, to get the work that I'm doing out there, to get the work that my colleagues are doing out there. Because hopefully, I hope that this conversation, you know, it, it inspires, like, even if it just inspires one person, right? I, we did our job. <laughs> our job is done. Like, it's done. <laughs> so, but I mean, I, I, I thank, you know, your listeners for listening and, Again, feel free. I'm sure you'll, you know, link my contact information and everything. Get in touch with me. I love talking to new people. I love talking about the work that I'm doing. I love talking about my woodpeckers. Also, I'll talk your head off about those. So beware. Um, (laughs) But yes, but again, I, I have enjoyed our time today. So thank you. So, so much. <laughs> what a gift, Lauren. I'm, I'm so grateful to you. And I will, I'll link to all your social media. I'll link to information on your woodpeckers. And you really all should follow Lauren because I think she has the best avatar picture on her profile that I've ever seen. It's this artistic portrait of her with a woodpecker on her shoulder. It's gorgeous. So you got to look her up just for that reason. 
<laughs> I love it. Love it. <laughs> happy, happy field work to you, Lauren. And thank you for your time. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. The Thing with Feathers is produced by me, Courtney Ellis. Many thanks to Del Belcher for the music, to Todd Peterson for the name inspiration, and to Emily Dickinson for the beautiful poem and for being in the public domain. Until next time, my friends, keep looking up. Your soul. Yes, it does.